All right, turn, if you would, to Romans 8. Romans 8. And we will dive in once again to Romans and get help from the Lord in his word. I was coming in this morning and I saw it must have been a giant carcass. And I mean, it looked like a horse or, you know, a cow or something like that. There must have been about 30 to 40 vultures, turkey vultures, just, I mean, it, it was just like they were all over the place. And sometimes I think Satan's messengers, his minions, they come like that on a life. They come and they attack and they throw all sorts of accusations, and it's like a swarm. And maybe some of you have been there. Maybe you were there this week, struggling with condemning thoughts, struggling with accusations. Maybe they're coming from Satan. Maybe they're coming from your own heart. But the Lord has a word for us in Romans 8 today to get some help. So let's come to him and pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father God, I thank you for this text of scripture. Lord, there's, there's nothing more glorious than getting to the heights of your revelation and just standing and gazing upon the beauty of your saving work in the lives of undeserving sinners like us. Lord, we do not deserve it. I do not deserve it. I marvel every day that I'm saved at all. And Lord, I thank you that it is a precious, blood-bought gift of Jesus Christ to all who will believe. And I thank you, Lord, that it's an unshakable gift. And I pray, Father, that the word that you have to bring today, Lord, would you bring a better one than the one I've prepared? Would your spirit come upon each and every heart in this room and those who are listening online, wherever we're at today, whatever discouragements we bring in, whatever feelings of angst, whatever condemnations that have swept over the soul, I pray, Father, that we would be able to look to this life-giving word from Romans 8 and get help, maybe for the first time or for the thousandth time as we have looked upon your divine revelation, your inspired word, and it's spoken a fresh word to us right where we need it. So we ask, Holy Spirit, come upon this time. Would you empower me and help me to get out of the way? That you would be glorified, you would be honored, you would be praised, and that we would just be transfixed by your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Romans chapter 8. We're there again. And we've just been soaring from height to height, from peak to peak every week, getting help from Romans 8. And I think of Romans 8 as a journey from no condemnation in Christ, the very first verse of the chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, to no separation, verse 35, right? Who shall separate us from the love of God or the love of Christ? And Paul answers in a powerful way, nobody, nothing, nothing in heaven or hell or in the earth can separate us from the love of Christ. And I was thinking about this because John Bunyan, who was one of the famous Puritans, wrote a Pilgrim's Progress. It's next to the Bible in English literature. It is the most popular book and the most printed book. And it's an allegory of the Christian life. And Bunyan pictures the Christian life as, and it follows a man named Christian, who comes to this place of awakening where he actually like starts to realize his sin, and it becomes like this burden on his back, and it's just heavy and hard to bear, and, and he's feeling the sense of guilt. 
He's feeling the sense of all of his misgivings and all of his futile pursuits in trying to live life. And he's being awakened. And nobody else in his household is except him. They think he's crazy. He starts talking about sin. He starts talking about guilt. And he goes on this journey. And before long, he encounters Christ. And he looks to Christ. And all of the guilt is removed. That, that weight on his back that was crushing him with condemnation is lifted. But the journey's not over. over. There, it, it's no condemnation in Christ. But the journey still needs to be lived. Amen? And he goes ultimately towards the celestial city, which is heaven. And every Christian in this room and every Christian listening to this message is on that journey. If you've been justified by faith in Christ alone, and you've been born again, you're on a journey, and one day it's going to be brought to completion. One day it's going to be brought from no condemnation all the way to no separation, and he'll bring you all the way home. And that's what we've been discovering in Romans 8. And if you look, that's what verse 30 says in Romans 8, right before we get to this last section. It shows God's perspective of how he works on the Christian in this journey. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he what? He also glorified. So God means to bring you from justification all the way home to glorification. And it's in the past tense, just so we might know it's as good as done. That's the kind of standing we have in the Lord. And so this week, I want us to get help because Paul was writing to Christians, right? He's writing to the Roman church. They're experiencing persecution. They're experiencing hard times. And this is not just meant to give a theological treatise. It's meant to put solid rock under our feet so we can stand in the trials of life, in the suffering of life, in the difficulty of life. And so you may have been punched in the gut. Just this past week, or you may feel like you've been in one long, difficult, hard road, and it's been a long time. And you need help from this word in Romans 8. You need to step inside of it and get encouragement. And so we're going to come and we're going to see three things. As we read, and I'm going to start in verse 31 just to give us the full context, but we're going to see three things. We're going to see no accusations will stand against us. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And then nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. So no accusation, no condemnation, no separation. And that's what you'll see in the text. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. This is God's word. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That was last week. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's glorious. 
For I am sure, I am certain, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't get any better than that. Because our Lord has, knows how to bring us all the way home. If you're a Christian, if you're saved and you're in the room today, or you're listening, God knows how to get his people all the way home. What do we read in the scripture reading? But the Lord is the one who keeps us. And he doesn't sleep or slumber. He doesn't tire. He doesn't snooze on the job. He will bring you all the way home. And this is so glorious that we're going to take those last couple verses next week and get some more help. But this week, I want us to meditate and think about this idea that there's no condemnation and it starts with the first thing I mentioned. No accusation will ultimately stick against the Christian. Did you see that in verse 33? Who shall bring any charge or accusation or maligning against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Do you notice that Paul's bringing us into courtroom imagery? He's stepping in. This isn't Judge Judy, right? This is like we're stepping into courtroom imagery. You're in the heavenly throne room before the court of God. And nobody is going to come into that room and level accusations against the people of God. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And have it finally stick. If God's the one doing the justifying. Now we've got we've to get at this who though, right? In the text. Because there is a who that Paul is imagining here. There is a who. And to, to, to kind of get help, who is bringing the charges? Who dares step into the courtroom of God and bring charges? Is it Satan who comes into the courtroom? You remember, Scripture says he is the accuser of the brethren. And he never ceases day and night to bring accusations before us and before God. Is it human accusations that's in view here? Have you ever been accused? Has anybody pointed the finger at you? Has anybody ever called you out? And listen, some of this might be true, right? Satan usually brings some stuff that's true. And, and we get human accusations that are true as well. Accusations come, and sometimes they come from within. Our own heart accuses us. Our own heart speaks words against us, right? And maybe you're there today, and it's you pointing the finger at yourself. We enter into a text that is so practical, so helpful, so freeing, so life-giving, that if you're a believer, it will bring you out of the throes of despair if you have accusing thoughts in your heart. But we've got we've to get our mind around it, because whether it's the world or the flesh or the devil who accuses us, God wants to encourage you that he has the final word. It is God who justifies. And that's important. And it's emphatic in the Greek. God is the main subject, right? It is God who justifies. God's doing something on your behalf. When the accusations come, when they fly. And they do fly. They fly from all over the place. At us. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect well they do come and regardless of the source of the accusations we need to remember 
that behind it all is usually satanic influence, right? Revelation 12.10 says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives unto death. We were singing that song earlier. Sinners plunge beneath the flood, right? And all their guilty stains have been what? They've been cleansed. All your guilty stains. All the accusations that are true about you, all of it has been dealt with by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But that doesn't stop the devil from lobbing the accusations, right? He just throws them like a volley of arrows. In medieval times, they would just shoot thousands of arrows and hope that some of them would get through the armor and get through the different shields and stuff like that and hit their mark. And that's exactly what Satan does. And he does it every day. Beloved, the Christian life plays out in the battlefield of the mind and the heart. So much of what you do and so much of how you live in this world is being played out in that battlefield, in that arena, and what you believe makes all the difference. Who you're listening to makes all the difference. Are you listening to Satan? Are you listening to yourself? Are you listening to the living God and what he has to say? It is God who justifies So next time the devil throws those accusations at you, you quote that verse to him. It's God who justifies. I'm reminded of Martin Luther, who once said in the midst of just a huge satanic attack, you know, he, he would say he learned how to talk to the devil, the truth of the gospel. And so when the accusations comes, he says, you know what, Satan? It's worse than you know. You don't even know the half of it. I am vile, but there is one who's made satisfaction for me. There's one who died in my place. There's one who rose from the dead. There's one whose robes of righteousness I'm clothed with. There's one who intercedes for me. Be gone. What did Jesus say in the midst of the temptation? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And when you see the words, it is God who justifies, you better put next to it, paid in full. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for the sins of his people. And there's two reasons we feel condemnation. Either we are in Christ and we're not remembering these truths and we're not beholding what Jesus has done for us, or we're not a believer and we rightly experience the condemnation and we need to look to him as our only hope. The prophet Isaiah bears witness to this reality. He who vindicates or justifies me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? If God is at our side, who ultimately will declare us guilty? The prophet Zechariah envisions a scene in which the high priest Joshua comes before the Lord and he's clothed in these filthy rags and God does something in his soul. 
God does something, and it's a picture of what happens to you and I as we trust in Christ. Listen to the words of the prophet Zechariah. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Is not this one, this priest, a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy rags from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with pure garments. Beloved, that's what Christ did for us. We stood before God in filthy rags. That's what the Bible says our sin looks like. We're filthy. In the sight of God, he sees our iniquity. Last week we talked about like, we're not as good as we think we are, and if we're trusting in our goodness, we can't be saved. Because we're like Joshua standing before the Lord in filthy garments and they need to be removed and robes of righteousness need to be given to us. Our iniquity needs to be taken out of the way. And if that happens, if God has robed you with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, then what accusation can finally come against you? It's been paid for. It's been removed. You've been cleansed. Stop believing the lies of the devil. That's the word of God to us, right? So it is God who justifies. And I could not get this imagery out of my mind, like, you know, of, of the arrows. And it makes me think of that old first Matrix movie. It's been like 20 years or something since it came out. But Matrix, you know the premise. It's, you know, machines have taken over the world. They've imprisoned and enslaved humanity and put them in a dream world called the Matrix. And there was a prophecy long ago that one would rise up named Neo, and he would deliver humanity from the deception of the machines and overthrow them. And it's even said that he could shape reality with his words and with his thoughts. Like they were borrowing some stuff from the Bible, I'm thinking, right? But ultimately, there's this scene at the end of the movie. It's so good. The, ag the agents trap Neo. He's trapped in a building. And they unload about a thousand rounds of ammunition at him, right? There's just bullets coming everywhere. And it's in that slow motion. And all of a sudden, right? Neo looks at it, causes all the bullets to stop in motion. And they're just hovering there, doing nothing. He takes one, looks at it flicks it to the ground, all of them come down at his very will. Beloved, Neo's got nothing on the Lord Jesus, okay? He makes all the accusations fall to the ground. Even the ones you're accusing yourself of. If your trust is in Christ. So whatever discouragement you have, whatever self-doubt, whatever introspection you're doing and you're looking at yourself and you're looking at yourself and you don't like what you see, look to Christ. He's a glorious Savior and it is God who justifies you and pronounced you not guilty and you stand in Him. You look to Him. It's the surest road to encouragement and to persevering in the Christian life. You see, if Pilgrim kept going on in his journey, or Christian in the Pilgrim's progress, if he kept going on in his journey and he picked up that, that weight and that pack, that condemnation, and he strapped it back onto his back, how far do you think he would have gotten? Not very far at all. He had to throw it down and look to Christ. And go up the mountain. And that's what we need to do. As believers. So where are we standing? 
today? Where are we trusting? What are we looking to? Is it Christ? Is it our own goodness? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. When all around my soul gives way, Christ is all my hope and stay. When you stand in your own good works and your own righteousness, it's sinking sand, right? It's quicksand. It's a trap. You fall. You get tangled. And you try to get better and get better. And what happens when you're wrestling out of quicksand? You just sink deeper. You've got to look to Christ. And you watch him reach into the quicksand and pull you out and give you new garments. That's what it means to trust Jesus as Lord of all. And why can Jesus do this? Well, listen to the words of the Apostle Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. It's the cross that liberates us to live a new way. It's the cross that brings us to God that justifies us as we trust in the cross work of Jesus. Or what about messed up Peter, right? Denies the Lord three times. What does he have to say about this whole thing? Right? Or I'm sorry, uh, that was Peter I just quoted. But Paul, right? Paul told the messed up church at Corinth, for our sake, he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What's he saying there? He's saying the one who knew no sin, Jesus, the sinless Savior, took on sin, became sin, as if he actually took all sin on himself on a cross so that you and I, through faith in him, might become the righteousness of God. And hear this pronouncement. When the accusations fly on the last day, it is God who justifies. So we're rock solid here in our standing in Christ. We've seen, right? No, no accusation is going to get through. But what about condemnation? What about condemnation? Point number two, no condemnation remains for the Christian. Look at it in verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who's interceding for you and I. So what's the answer to condemnation? Four things in this passage, right? Four things in that little verse. Who's to condemn us? Well, nothing can condemn us because... Jesus Christ died for us. He rose. He sits at the right hand of God as king. And he ever lives to make intercession for us as our great high priest, always pleading the work of the cross before the Father on our behalf. This is glorious. I mean, it doesn't get better than knowing what Jesus did for you. And we just need to we need to go deeper into it. Right. We need to we could spend a whole sermon on just this verse. We could spend a whole sermon on each of those four points. Because they're worthy of it. But why does the condemnation come? Why do we feel the condemnation? Why is condemnation a problem? Because the Bible says so. Right. The Bible clearly indicates the wages of sin is death. The Bible clearly indicates our sin has separated us from our God. Our righteousness is but filthy rags, right? Apart from Christ, we stand guilty as charged. Romans 3.19 makes this point emphatically. Now we know that whatever the law speaks or says it speaks, to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Condemned, guilty, as charged. 
Did he say just some people, like the bad ones? Sometimes we could do that, right? There's the bad people out there and the good people in here, right? But we're all condemned. We're all guilty. We're all lost apart from Jesus. That's why the verdict on the last day, you, if you're standing in what you've done, if you're standing in your religious activity, if you're standing in the faith of your parents, if you're standing in somebody else's faith, if you're standing in re re religious rituals that you've done, well, I was baptized that one time. You're going to perish on the last day. You're going to be incinerated before the heavenly wrath of God. Because he cannot deal with sin without justice. He's holy and he's good and he's right and he responds to evil in the right way. That's bad news, right? That's bad news in the courtroom. But notice what Romans 8.34 says as we ponder the question put to Christians. Who is to condemn us? Jesus is the one who died, right? Jesus dies. Jesus raises. Jesus is the king who sits at the right hand of God. And he intercedes for you and I. That's all over Romans 8. Romans 8, 3, right? For God has done what the law, weakened by our sinful flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he did what? He condemned sin in the flesh. If sin is not condemned by Jesus in his flesh, then we will experience the condemnation ourselves. But for all who trust in Christ, it's been condemned in Jesus. He bore the wrath. God's not going to deal double jeopardy on Jesus, right? And you. He's already poured his wrath out on Christ on your behalf. So you will not face it on the last day. That's why this, that's why it's there, right? Jesus died. He pays the wrath or he pays the price to liberate you from the wrath you deserve to bear. First Peter 3.18 says something similar. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh. But made alive in the spirit. Do you notice that it says. The righteous. For the good person. <laughs> no. The righteous for. You know the so so person. Who's got. He's got well, his, his good deeds are outweighing his bad deeds. Right. No. It's either righteous or unrighteous. In the sight of God. It's God who justifies us and he does it through the cross. I was thinking of the Chronicles of Narnia. And what do we see in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Which is another allegory of the Christian life. And in Narnia, death does not start working backwards until Aslan is what? is sacrificed on the stone table. And when that happens, the stone table of the law cracks in half and death starts working backwards for all who believe. All the Narnians begin to get set free. Beloved, that's what it means for Jesus to die for you. He died to set you free and to give you life. But he didn't just die, he raised up from the grave. And his resurrection is not merely about you getting life beyond the grave. Sometimes we can talk about the Christian life as just like a heavenly, a journey to heaven, which is true. And we get saved to get to heaven. But ultimately, Jesus is actually doing something more in his resurrection. And so is the father in raising him up. The Bible actually speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as God's vindication of Jesus, of who he is and what he's done, and his acceptance of what happened on the cross. 
doesn't matter what happens on the cross if God doesn't receive it on our behalf. But that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 4.24. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who was raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses or our sins and raised for our justification. He's delivered up for our sins and He's raised up so that you might have a right standing before God. If there is no resurrection, we're still in our sins. That's what Paul's saying. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ is not raised, we're all a bunch of fools. But Christ is, in fact, raised. And you can go interview 500 people who saw him risen from the dead, Paul says. Go ahead and take that list and check it out for yourself. Jesus' resurrection to life he does what nobody else could do. Who can conquer death but the Son of God, the Prince of Life, the Prince of Glory? And He doesn't just raise up. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is exalted to the position of a king before God. And this text is actually alluding to, right? He's seated at the right hand of God, it's alluding to the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110 and verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus is king, and until all his enemies are torn asunder, and the cosmos is renewed, and the heaven comes down in a new heaven and new earth, He's king and he's exalted at the right hand of God and his work is finished. He is Lord of all and he is the exalted Messiah. He's the one we've all been waiting for. He's the one we've been longing for. There's longing all through the Bible, all through biblical history and all through human history. For redemption. You see it in all the programming. That's why there's all these ideas, right? Marvel heroes. We need saviors to come, right? Get a superhero in the mix to save us. We're crying out for Jesus. We're crying out for rescue. Why do all of the, the, the addictions go on in the world and people are going to somebody to try to help? Well, we better look to a higher power. He has come and his name is Jesus. And he died for you. And he rose from the grave. He's seated at the right hand of God. And what? He ever lives to make intercession for you. That's what verse 34 says. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. And who indeed is interceding for you. Do you know what that language intercession means? It means he's a high priest for your good. He loves you. He's a high priest and he stands before the father as an advocate pleading his blood. And his atonement forever in the Old Testament. Priests had to make sacrifices for their own sin and they died. So you had to get a new priest. Jesus lives forever. His sacrifice was once for all. And He ever lives to make intercession before God for you. That's glorious. So some of you experience guilt and condemnation on a daily basis. And where are you going with it? Some of you are experiencing discouragement and you, are, you hate yourself. And where are you going? If you don't go to Christ, you don't get set free. Jesus stands as a righteous advocate before the Father towards any would-be prosecutor. Right? Anybody stepping up into Judge Judy's court, right? Or Judge Judy kind of does the prosecuting herself, right? And just talks, talks smack to everybody. Ultimately, nobody's going to stand in the face of Jesus. He's the best attorney in the world. He's the righteous attorney. 
and he paid the price to set you free. And that's what 1 John chapter 2 makes abundantly clear. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, and we all do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. All those who trust in Jesus he becomes their defense attorney. And no, once, once you go to the Supreme Court, right, and something is, is, is decided, right? We got all sorts of stuff going on right now in our country at that level. But you go to the heavenly court and it gets decided, it's done. It is God who justifies. Nobody's coming in to his heavenly courtroom and bringing a condemnation upon you because Jesus died on a cross, rose from the grave, stands before the Father, and pleads your case. There's nothing more glorious than that. Point three. This all leads us to no separation. And I'm going to be brief because I'm going to pick this up next week. No separation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Do you really believe that? Nothing can separate you from God's love if you are in Christ. Absolutely nothing. Some of you struggle with doubts about your salvation. Some of you struggle with thinking, am I going to make it? Am I going to shipwreck my Christian life? Am I going to make uh, a wreckage of my life? And this passage stands as an answer to that question. I'm going to read it in full. I just want you to take it in, drink it in. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, trials, difficulties, shall distress, hard times, stresses, burdens, worries, concerns, shall persecution, are you going to get attacked for the faith? Shall famine, are you lacking food or material provision? Shall nakedness, do you just feel destitute? Like you're not going to make it. Bills are not getting paid. Danger or sword. Can any of those things separate you? There's seven things that Paul mentions there. And none of them can separate us from the love of Christ. And he's going to list ten other ways to show us that nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth, nothing supernatural, not angels or devils, height, depth, anything else in creation could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Beloved, you need to know you're loved by God and His love is omnipotent. His love is unfailing. His love is powerful. His love keeps. His love perseveres. His love holds you. He will hold you fast. He will hold you fast. For my Savior loves me so, right? He will hold you fast. Do you believe it? Do you lay hold of it? Maybe some of you have just you've forgotten how much God loves you. You've forgotten the great, great love of God towards you and He loves you. And you need to know that today. He loves you and He's been calling you to believe Him and to trust Him and to realize nothing can separate you from Him. Now, probably about five or six years ago, we went to a... Fall Festival at Southern Seminary. And, you know, I think it was a, a Narnia theme or something like that. They had bounce houses everywhere. There were thousands of people out on the lawn in the Southern Seminary. And it was just wall to wall. And there was a lot of fun stuff to do. And Isaiah was probably about five years old. And he was just having a blast. And we're just seeing things kind of like unfold. And we're excited. And we're just having a good time. And all of a sudden, I'm looking around, and I'm scanning the sea of people, and 
And I realized I don't see Isaiah anymore. And he's gone. He was right next to me. And he's gone. And we start getting a little bit worried. Start getting a little sweaty, you know. We start thinking, okay, we get deploy all our friends. Let's go find him. We call security. We're looking everywhere. We're looking in bounce houses. We're looking in bathrooms. We're looking in buildings. We're looking in the library. We're running around and there's just a sea of people and it's like no Isaiah. He's utterly cut off from us. Five minutes turns to 10 minutes and the panic just increases. And finally, somebody found him stuffed in one of those little bounce houses with about 50 other kids. And we saw him and we just lapped him up and we're so glad that we're no longer separated. Beloved, do you realize that that can never happen to you in Christ? It can never happen to you. Not on God's watch. You will never, never be finally lost. If you follow Jesus and trust him, if you are saved, if you're born again, if you're one of God's elect, right? If you're one of God's people, if you're the one that he set his his foreknowledge and he foreloved you and he predestined you and he called you and he justified you and he's going to glorify you. Ain't nobody stopping that. That train's going through. And nobody can snatch us from his hands. Nobody can snatch us from the hand of the Lord. And that's exactly what Jesus, our good shepherd, says, isn't it? What does he say? I know my sheep and I lay down my life for my sheep. My sheep know me and they hear my voice. And I will lose none of them. I will lose absolutely none of my sheep. So next time you doubt. Whose you are. Remember, it's not how firm your grip is. It's how firm his grip is. And he said, no one can snatch us from his hand. We can't snatch ourselves out of his hand either. Because you know what? Jesus says, not only do I hold you, but nobody can snatch you from my father's hand. John 10. Go back home today and read John 10 and just drink in the glorious eternal security that just beams at you from the good shepherd. He knows how to get his people home. So in closing, how are you doing with accusations? How are you dealing with accusing thoughts and demonic deception? How are you doing with condemning hearts, condemning feelings? How are you doing with feeling perhaps isolated or cut off from God? This passage is meant to speak to you and remind you Christ is calling you home Christ is calling you to himself whether you're a believer or if you're here today and you don't even know God is speaking to you and Jesus the good shepherd says my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them. Do you hear him calling you today to come to him? Do you as a believer hear him calling you to remain steadfast in your gaze upon the King Jesus? Do you take your accusing thoughts to the cross and lay them down? Perhaps the Lord is calling you today to fresh faith in him, fresh trust in the cross, fresh turning away from all the other things that are making you miserable. The internal dialogue you're having that's just beating you up. 
and you need to hear God's word to you as you trust Christ. It is God who justifies. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that no matter where we're at today, that you love us, that you love us so much that you sent your son into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm chief. And Lord, I thank you that your love is a love that calls into the darkness and beckons to people to come to the light of the world and be saved. Your love is a love that comes into the guilty conscience and says, turn to me and I will give you pardon and rescue. Your love is that which comes upon your sheep and assures them that you will hold them fast. You'll never leave them. You'll never forsake them. And so I pray, Father, today, wherever we're at, Lord, that we might pray just a simple prayer of trust right now in saying something like, Lord, I believe you died on the cross for my sins. My sins. I believe you rose from the grave and God accepted that sacrifice. And I believe that you rose to the right hand of the Father and you ever live to make intercession for me. And I want your forgiveness. I want your encouragement. I want your peace. And Lord, I just want to swim in these realities that no accusation will stand. No condemnation will finally be brought. And no one can snatch me from you. Lord, we thank you. And we pray, help us today in Jesus' name. Amen.